0: On this Reformation Sunday, we're looking at one of the major tenets of the Reformation, Sola Scriptura, or Scripture alone. For a period of time, much of what was called the church was suffering from a deepening darkness. Truth was hard to find, having been obscured by superstition and the traditions of men. Scripture tells us that in Proverbs that where there is no vision, the people perish. And if we went with a modernist interpretation of that, it, it would be that people have to come up with an idea that, that how the church has to, has to go and how it has to deal with the current culture. But that's not what that verse means. Literally, it means without a prophetic word, the church perishes, the people perish. Without the word of God, the people perish. That is, without the word of God, we have no purpose being here. We're no different than the Kiwanis or the Knights of Columbus or whatever other group you can think of. It is the word of God pointing us to Christ. Christ is the head of his church that makes us a church. Moses put the importance of the word of God this way. If we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. In Deuteronomy 32 in verse 46. Moses was speaking and he said to them. Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today. Which you shall command your children to be careful to observe. All the words of this law. For it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. What a statement that is made. It's not a futile thing, he says. It's not an empty thing. It is not a vain thing. It's not an empty word. He because it is your life, your life, this law, it's all the word of God that they possessed this is what he was speaking of. It's your very life and by it you will prolong your days. You shall live. We can't begin to calculate how much death happened in Israel from their setting aside the word of God. Now another well-known passage would be in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What a statement. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We know that word inspiration means it is God breathed. What happened to man when God breathed into him? He came to life. That means... The word of God is alive. It's God breathed that's inspired by him. That's why the writer of Hebrews can say that the word of God is alive and lively and lives. It's like a, any sharp two-edged sword. It's the living word. It's not dead. I know we have a generation of people that are coming up and saying, well, we don't trust it. It's just like any other religious writing. No, it's not. No one has ever been saved by reading the Koran. Or any of the other books. It is only through scripture. This scripture that salvation can be known. All scripture is God breathed. It is, and also means too that okay God is its author. And what do we know about God? He never changes. He never changes. So many other books out there that we can get some knowledge from are in their multiple editions, 16th edition, 17th edition. Why? Because things changed and they had to accommodate those changes and they learned maybe something that they didn't know before. But when it comes to the word of God, as we read in the Psalms, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven That's a great thing to know that there's not going to be a second edition. That we already know that God has said if anybody adds on to this word, they will be cursed. And if anyone detracts from it or takes away from it, there will be a curse. All scripture given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. In our own confession of faith. In chapter one, in paragraph one, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge and faith and obedience. The importance has been downplayed, this importance that we're speaking of, and in some cases misunderstood for hundreds of years beginning around 700 AD and continuing into 12 and 1300 this idea was almost completely lost but it was part of the beauty of the Protestant Reformation and one of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation that we were talking about in Sunday school this morning sola scriptura, scripture alone was one of those things that came forth and was the bright light shining through all that darkness. It was during the dark ages that Roman Catholicism had set aside the importance of Scripture, had relegated it to only one-third of the church's authority. And so we see then, it's first of all about the proper place or authority of Scripture, the church's only source of truth for its doctrine. We see everyday people talking about this and that, about things that they say are true and things that they say are false. We are often told that we need to change the way that we look at things. We're constantly berated with the idea that old ways are bad ways and everything new is good. Well, in some ways, there are new good things. But that doesn't mean everything old is bad. And how do you measure the word of God since it's eternal? If it's eternal, it can neither be old or new. For it endures forever. I think it's Oprah Winfrey has a, a column in New York Times. Things I know for certain. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who read it because it's Oprah. And there's a question that often comes up, especially uh, about our, our confession of faith. Why would you trust a confession of faith that's over 420 years old? Why would you do that? I mean, times have changed, cultures have changed, and all that. Yes, but the Word of God has not. There is no faith 2.0 or 3.0. It is the faith that is once delivered to the saints. Jude verse 3 makes that clear that we are to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. There's not another delivery coming. There's not a second edition on its way. Cultures change, the seasons change, man's knowledge of things might change. But the word of God remains forever, forever settled, unchangeable, because it's from God, a God who does not change. No, that people would challenge the authority of the Word of God is not a new thing. It's as old as man himself. Turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God's word, God's command. If we turn over to chapter 3 and verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. God says in the day of it, you eat of it, you shall surely die. The serpent says, nah. That's not the case. Here we have the word of God. Not only being brought into question, but flatly refuted. What should they do? Should they think of it epistemologically or ontologically or philosophically? What were they to do? What choice did they have? They only had one choice and that is to do as the Lord had commanded them. Follow the authority of the word of God but they didn't do it and for in so doing they released a world of sorrow to all generations. The original fall of man is founded in the rejection of the authority of the Word of God. Scripture's the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Martin Luther's 95 thesis really didn't have a whole lot to say about things of the Reformation as we were pointing out. If you read the 95, it deals mostly with indulgences that the church was handing out at that time, people paying for their sins, paying in advance for their sins, paying for the sins of others to get them out of purgatory. That man-made doctrine and that idea that could not save anybody. Nobody can be saved by how much they donate. It helped the Roman Catholic building plans, yes. It helped them build their cathedrals, yes. But no one was saved from it. In fact, people were further condemned. Remember when Simon Magus said to the apostles, tell me about this Holy Spirit thing you got going on. That's pretty neat. How do I buy the Spirit? I can do the, I can do the miracles and stuff that y'all are doing. How much, the, how much is the Holy Spirit going for right now? And Peter's answer is your money perish with you for you're in the gall of bitterness. This man-made doctrine These ideas, people buying money, pay for their sins. And when Luther was asked to recant the teachings that he was giving about that there has to be true repentance and true repentance cannot come from penance or from the giving of money. He gave that well-known response. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture and by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the popes or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures. The Scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. Now, from the 95 thesis, you understand that coming out of and underneath it was the idea of how was a man to be right before God? How could he have a right standing before God? How could he be seen as righteous before God? It wasn't by the paying of indulgences. It wasn't by the penance and reciting this and that and the other thing or crawling on your knees up a flight of stairs or anything like that. It was by faith alone in Christ alone. Now there's been confusion and there have been misapplications about this teaching. First, Some have said that only the Bible has truth. That's the only book that has truth. Well, that's kind of wrong-headed. There are plenty of books with truth in them. Some history books, math books, geography books. There are books that have moral truths in them. So when we say sola scriptura, we're not saying scripture is the only book with truth. But we are saying this. Scripture has the market cornered on saving truth. On saving faith. Not obedience. If any other book is truthfully teaching these things, they had to get it from scripture. If you read a book that talks about justification by faith, The only way that that book can be true is that it got its information from the Word of God. Secondly, it's not saying the Bible covers every single area of truth. When I had my surgery last month, I did not expect if I was awake during that surgery, which I'm glad I wasn't, but I wouldn't expect a surgeon with all the attendants around him to say, okay, as we begin this, turn to Leviticus chapter 24. And we will find the instructions on how to operate. That's not in the word of God. We would not go to the Bible for instructions on how the internal combustion engine works. But we might find out that electric vehicles are of the devil. That's my opinion. And the opinion of all those who had them catch fire down in Florida when they got flooded. The third thing that we're not saying, we're not saying the Bible is the only place that we can gain knowledge, we can learn from experience. We can learn from the created world around us. We are, by God's grace and creation, reasonable creatures for the most part. We may learn from experience that the first water out of the showerhead may not be the warmest water. Our reformers spoke of nature as God's second book. Nature teaches us a lot, but it can never teach us as a certain and infallible rule of all saving knowledge. And fourthly, one of the more troublesome misuses or misunderstandings or abuses is what is so common around us today in the churches is the individualistic interpretation idea. I sit down with my Bible And God alone, and that's all I need. Alexander Campbell, the followers of the Disciples of Christ Christian Church, said, I have endeavored to read the scriptures as though no one had read them before me. That's a foolish idea. That's a foolish idea. That's saying, I don't need anything or anybody else. I can figure all this out myself, which is a good way to start a cult. We have a whole generation of people thinking everything old is bad, but realize we live in a world where 85% of the economy of this country is based on people consuming some new thing. 85% of our economy is based on people saying the old is bad. We're, We're conditioned from day one. You don't want cloth diapers. We've got new improved diapers. And it starts. You don't want that old Gerber stuff. We've got this natural organic stuff. It just starts right from the beginning as soon as we we come out of the, the womb, basically, that we start being faced with a world that's, that's disenchanted. We always have to have something else. We are constantly told how new ideas are better than old ideas, and somehow, this distrust of old things has seemed to infect the churches. But it is so wrong-headed. People who think, like Alexander Campbell did. I just sit down by myself. I, I read it like no one has ever read it before. Like I'm the first to be reading it. This kind of mindset is like, all of a sudden, boom, the Bible fell from the sky into his hands. For all mankind to come up with their own way of understanding. I think it was Thomas Oden who said, reading how the old church fathers interpreted scripture was like watching Willie Mays play center field. When you see someone who knows what they're doing and has been doing it for a long time, You learn from them. That's how it's supposed to be done. We do better by going back. In the church. Than we do going forward. The faith that was once delivered. Is the same faith today. We read it as it has been. Historically taught. Nothing has changed. From the apostles to today. The faith was once delivered there's not a shipment of new faith coming for each generation this individualistic autonomy that seems so much that the individual by himself autonomously away from everything else believes by himself it leaves wide open the door for wrong-headed conclusions about what Scripture means. It's no longer the authority of Scripture, but the authority of the individual. And like I said, every cult in the world began this way. The Reformers didn't break with the past, they returned to it. That's why it's called the Reformation, Reformation, coming back to the way things were in the beginning. They saw themselves as returning to something very old, something the church had originally believed, but later twisted and distorted. As Robert Godfrey said, the reformers were not innovators, they were excavators. We proclaim the same thing when we say, We believe in one apostolic church. That church is built on the foundation of the apostles with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. You see, how can we know truth without comparing it? I would not hesitate to say that over 60% of what is considered Christianity today would have been on trial for heresy in the first century in 2nd century. And this is why we have Reformation Sundays to remind us. The church needs to shed the modern incapacity to accept with gratitude what has come before it and what has done on its behalf. To get over itself. We need to be thankful, full of gratitude for these who took and went against the established order that had gone so far wrong that had added line after line and law after law of things on top of the word of God that were never meant to be. You like that, that optimistic boy who when he walked in front of the horse stall, saw someone said to him, can't be much there. And he looked inside that stall and he said, with all that manure, there's got to be a pony under there. And I don't mean to be crass, But the teachings of men and the ideas of men that were piled upon what the church was to believe was a pile of manure that needed to be removed. That the stench of what mankind had brought to that, what man had done and twisted things so they could stay in control and be the Lord's over people's souls. We need to get over this Modern incapacity to accept with gratitude what's come before us. We need to stop hating people in the past and realize that they had something really good, and that we wouldn't be here without it. There's much has been done on our behalf, and much that we have to think about for the next generation the importance of the things that we preserve for them. For it will always be one truth, only one sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, of faith and obedience, which is necessary for salvation. Jesus said this. He said, all the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And in that same chapter in John chapter 6, When Jesus said to the rest of the apostles. The disciples. Will you also go away? And they said. Lord to whom shall we go? Thou. Hast the words. Of eternal life. It's from scripture. That we learn. That there is no other name under heaven. By which. We must be saved. It is from scripture that we learn the just shall live by faith, faith alone, in Christ alone. And we today stand on the same ground as those who were the reformers and say that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Let's stand together for prayer.